0: Welcome to Episode 2 of the James Inc. Podcast. I am Jesse Ulrich.
1: And I am Elisa Bell.
0: And for those of you who listened to Episode 1, we mentioned that we were going to spend the next couple episodes learning about and hearing about the history of the Margaret Hudson program here in TELSA. And while we're still going to do that in future episodes, today we want to talk about the policy issues facing our public schools right now in Oklahoma. And to do that, we asked Rebecca Fine from the Oklahoma Policy Institute to come and to talk to us about how complicated the Oklahoma education system, the problems it faces, and the challenges it faces today are.
1: And I would like to thank Rebecca for joining us and for helping us to understand the legislature and the policies that led to the Individual Career Academic Plan, or ICAP, icap is effective for the 2019 2020 school year and so it's information that we as parents and that we as helping individuals in the education system need to know so again thank you rebecca and having said that let's get started
0: Today, our guest is the education policy analyst and Kids Count coordinator for the Oklahoma Policy Institute, Rebecca Fine. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Welcome to the James Inc. Podcast.
2: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Tell me, Rebecca, what was the best job you ever had? That's a tough question. So I'm going to cheat and give you two answers. Okay. Well, out. <laughs> uh, so before becoming an education policy analyst, I was a teacher. And I love teaching. Um, So in many ways, that was the best job I've ever had because I both love teaching and I love kids. And I taught sixth grade, which I'm convinced is the best grade um, because they're still young and curious and interested in the world. And they're just developing enough sass to make it fun. So I love teaching, but... I really love what I'm doing now. I've been in my position for about a year and I keep telling people it's the first job that I love fully, fully, fully. For a lot of different reasons, but mostly because I like looking at the big picture And the space that I work in allows me to look at the big picture. It allows me to look at the system and understand where the system's broken. And policy calms my nerves, I think, because I see a lot of solutions in policy. You know, you both see a lot of problems, but then you look at policy and you say, "Okay, there's a way to fix this. And so it feels calming and it feels empowering and it feels like a really privileged space to be in. So I love this job.
1: So that's a fantastic segue to my next question then. So tell me, when did policy begin to matter to you? At at what point?
2: I would say starting late high school and definitely into college, I became really interested in different social justice issues at large. And so... In college, I was really involved in environmental groups and um, became a political science major and minored in anthropology. So started thinking about these problems more deeply and how to make change and how to fix them. And then after college, I, I taught and I taught in low-income schools here in Tulsa. So I taught at Madison Middle School, which um, is just on the just northwest side, Uh, closed in 2011 as part of Project Schoolhouse. And then I also taught at Union 6th, 7th grade center. And during my time in the classroom, I saw so many of the problems that I had been learning about and reading about and experiencing to some degrees in college. But I saw them right in front of me and they're problems that, you know, at its core, about poverty and race and gender in some instances and inequality and it was teaching in a low-income school was incredibly rewarding so rewarding but it was also really really hard and I think a lot of teachers who teach in uh, low-income schools experience a kind of psychological, really trauma. There's new research coming out, understanding how teachers are being traumatized, and they're not always getting the, the help and support that they need to really process what they're experiencing. You know, my students come from lives that are really difficult. Um, And they're facing problems that no child should have to face. And as a teacher, you're often the first line of defense. You know, you're, you're the adult that they are seeing every single day, sometimes for more hours than they might be seeing your parents. And they come to you with these problems. And they, of course, impact how they're learning in the classroom, right? That if kids' psychological and physical needs aren't met, they certainly can't cognitively learn the things that they need to learn. And so that was really, really challenging. It came to a point where I said to myself, I see what's going on and I still don't quite understand it. I don't understand why these problems are persisting. I don't understand why we can't solve them. I don't understand why this feels like such a mess and a really painful mess. And so that led me to graduate school. Um, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and studied educational policy studies there. I had the great privilege of spending three years trying to better understand what was going on and why. And I feel like I do. I have a better understanding, and that led me to this current position at OK Policy and doing education policy work at the state level.
0: Do you find, I feel like when people are having social justice arguments or societal arguments or political arguments, they're very rarely actually talking about what the policy is and what the policy could be. How do you find your work at the Oklahoma Policy Institute? as a? Do you view it as a way of, educating both those for and against a particular position of what the realities of the situation are?
2: Yeah, um, it's a really good question. Education is, well, everyone likes to say their area is unique, right? So I'm just going to say it. Education is unique (laughs) because um, everyone's gone to school. And so I think there's a sense of I've been to school. uh, Maybe I'm a parent. My kid goes to school. Like I know what's going on here. And to some extent, that's very true. People understand their lived experiences better than anyone. Only you can understand truly what you're going through to some extent. To another extent, these problems are deep and they're complex and they're really messy. And so I, it's funny, I've recently started to... Um, come into casual conversation with people and mention the work I do, and then they start telling you things. (laughs) I'm like, oh, this is what doctors must feel like when you're like, I'm a doctor, and you're like, I have this thing on my finger, help me. (laughs) And so it's tricky because... In, in the state of Oklahoma, this is a time that oh, I feel so lucky to have been a part of. I was a teacher during the walkout, and I walked out with my fellow teachers and feel empowered and proud of that. And there are education advocates and teachers and parents and students in this state who understand these issues really deeply they know what's going on they're living it and there are also individuals who might not totally understand what's going on myself included but i think it's it's tricky because to a certain extent we are sometimes talking about policies but it's it's again it's complicated and it's so multi-layered and complex and it's so deeply personal and important. I mean, these are your kids going to school or this is you in school or you're a teacher and like, I've been there before. These are your kids that you're teaching. And so it comes with a layer of emotion um, and anger and a kind of trust that you're hoping for. And that gets messy and complicated too. So I think it can be really hard to get at the issue, mm-hmm. the policy, the solution, because there's so much complexity around it that can be confusing and hard to navigate.
1: As you know, James Inc.'s population is expecting and parenting adolescent family, both male and female, um, 13 to 24 years old. And at the beginning of the year, or maybe around May or June, I sat down with an intern and she was looking for a research project. And I said and And it's been an an issue that I've grappled with, but my question my question was, how do we define social justice for the expecting and parenting child? I don't think um, we talk about the issue. We talk about the negatives, but we don't talk about what real social justice looks like for that particular population. How would you define it?
2: I think that for a young person, a young a teen who's expecting that their definition of social justice for me would be really similar to the kind of social justice I would hope for for any child or any young person. And that's someone who has all of the opportunities and everything that they need available to them to enable them to have a healthy life, to have a safe life, so their most basic needs are met. And then beyond that, they can have all the resources they need to self-determine what their life looks like. Um, so if you're young and you're expecting a child, you're going to need good health care. So social justice to me would be that they have access to that. And that could, you know, and and they can afford it in mm-hmm. whatever form that comes mm-hmm. in. It would also mean that they have access to a high quality education, mm-hmm. that they could still go to school so they could learn all of the knowledge and skills that they need so that they can go on to have a, a, not only a fulfilling career, but a career and a job that pays them a living wage so that they can take care of their child and that they have access to mental health services, which they probably need. Mm-hmm. Um. So social justice would mean that that expecting parent has everything they need to live a healthy, happy and full life.
1: I so agree with that. Um, but as I think about being an expecting parent myself in this community and as I think about the young people that I work with, I work really hard to change the image and focus of what the expecting and parenting team looks looks like so that the people that they encounter will not see them as the stereotype immediately, but see them with the possibility that they come with. And so all of the activities or interventions that James puts into place at this point are geared toward making that narrative different um, for that reason, I do a lot of research, and a lot of looking at different policy. As you know, the governor has this goal for us to be a top 10 city. And education is one of the areas within that top 10 criteria. Based on that, I have been looking at the new ICAP requirements. Not a lot of people, from what I gather, even understand fully what that is. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's It appears... That it started in 2016 with the development and the the assessment and the development for requirements to change um, what graduation requirements would be, and then at that point we were under the old uh, end of instruction type criteria where students had to reach proficiency in certain areas before they graduated. And now this whole entire ICAP has replaced that. Can you explain ICAP? And if I'm misstating that, can you correct me? Sure.
2: I don't know all the contextual and historical details that you just mentioned. And 2016 sounds about right when it passed, but I'd have to look that up. Okay. So what I do know is that the ICAP, the Individualized Career Academic Plan, is a new requirement that guidance counselors have been um, asked to carry out. And my understanding is that this is a way to ensure that statewide Every student gets to sit down with a counselor and have a conversation about what their goals are, how they're going to get there, and um, a plan that follows them through high school to ensure that they're coming out of high school ready to either enter the workforce or go to college. Beyond that, I really don't know much more. Um, I did talk to a guidance counselor about the ICAP, and I know that I think that there's concern about being able to implement this policy effectively, partly because we've been underfunded for the last decade, doesn't have a sufficient number of guidance counselors. And by that, I mean that the national recommendation for the ratio between guidance counselors to students is one to every 250 students. And currently in Oklahoma, that ratio is one to Uh, One guidance counselor for every 435 students. And so the caseload that guidance counselors have is huge. And and that's a state number? Yeah. Do you know like what TPS's number is? I don't know what TPS's ratio is off the top of my head No, But I do know that guidance counselors are, you know, I should stop calling them guidance counselors because... Now their official title is school counselors, because it m- more appropriately encompasses what their their official role is, which is giving both academic, academic, and career support, giving them um, any kind of emotional support that they might need, um, and then also, of course, making sure that they are, you know, uh, meeting all of their requirements. They're different from, a mental health professional who can give you know who can give therapy mm-hmm. like an lpc mm-hmm. a licensed professional counselor but guidance counselors play an incredibly important role because they're after the teacher, they're really that first line of defense that is looking at a student more holistically and from year to year and really ensuring that they're staying on track, that they're getting the services they need if they do need more intensive therapy. And because their caseloads are so high, mm-hmm. they're not able to serve students in the way that they really need to. And so a lot of students are falling through the cracks. So the ICAP, I think, is a really good policy. You know, I think that's, that's important to have um, a statewide initiative to make sure that there's some formal way that that students are able to get the support that they need. Unfortunately, how does that policy end up playing out in a state that's been underfunded where there's not enough school counselors is a really different picture.
1: Absolutely. I think that the issue also uh, transcends to the community college level because I have a student right now who really needs to speak to a guidance counselor, a career counselor, whatever they are at that level. And um, there's a three-week wait. Mm -hmm. And if you're in the middle of a semester and you're already struggling and then you have to schedule out three weeks later, that becomes super difficult to get the assistance that you need. It's, It's unbelievable to me. But even in that, when I think about 250 as the national average, that's the national
2: recommendation.
1: As, but even as the recommendation, mm-hmm.
2: how can one
1: person serve 250
2: mm-hmm.
1: and do it effectively?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That, that is just insane to me. And I find that our counselors and the model for providing therapy in some way kind of mirrors that as well. The larger agencies, people may have a caseload of 75 or 80 people. There's no way you can effectively work with that many people understand what their goals are and help them to move forward in those goals. It's just too many people.
2: Yeah, I guess I can talk about this through the lens of a teacher. Let's see, when I was a teacher, I had about, I don't know, 130 to 140 students on average. And yeah, that's a lot of kids to keep track of and to make sure you're serving effectively. What I will say is this is getting a little bit outside of my area of expertise in terms of, you know, school school counselors and and their, their particular work. But I do know that, you know, in that caseload of 130 or 250, you have some students who might need less help and might be more self-sufficient and you might have kids who need more. So I'm only assuming that that national recommendation is based on sound research and evidence that shows that, you know, yeah, I agree. Um, It's super difficult. I mean, it would be difficult if I had, you know, 100 students Mm -hmm. on my roster. I'm assuming it's a caseload that we certainly know would be better than having 435 students. That's for sure. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And then I also think that there's a huge opportunity for us to engage uh, families and communities in helping us to reach um, the desired goals of these children. When I go back and look at the ICAP initiative and the requirements that are there, there are things like internships and apprenticeships and visioning a lot of work that really we can do with the assistance of our churches. Mm-hmm. And with the assistance of parents, making parents better aware of what's going on. It's just a lot of work in general.
2: It, it is a lot of work. And I think this speaks to the point you were talking about before in terms of um, helping to demystify stereotypes about what a young expecting parent might look like or what they might actually be like. And what we do know is that many of the young parents who you are working with are often low income and they might be a person of color, a young mm-hmm. person of color. And what we also know is that in low income communities and in black and brown communities, they are more likely to not have access to the resources and opportunities that they need. And as you've just said, it takes a lot of resources to raise a child. Mm-hmm. And we know in the schools in these neighborhoods, in low-income schools, that not only in Oklahoma are all schools underfunded, but then this problem becomes compounded when we are in neighborhoods that have historically and systemically been been marginalized and who have been systematically experienced racism in ways that mean that they have less resources, they have less wealth, and they then don't have access to all of the things that they need, like healthcare, like healthy food, like high quality schools. And so understanding why a young parent might be a young parent because they don't have these resources, I think is a really important way to help um, people better understand why that that young woman is in the situation that she's in.
1: Well, and even in understanding that, understanding the circumstances that she's in is one thing, but also understanding that her, Circumstance; It's not just a poverty issue. It's an issue across the board. Mm-hmm. When I think of um, the Paula Marshalls of the world, and she's made it clear she has a book. Paula Marshall is the CEO of Bama Pie. Mm-hmm. Her parents started Bama Pie. She was a teen parent probably in the late to early the late 60s, early 70s, gone on to do phenomenal things. She absolutely runs the company, is a mass, is at least a master's level person, but was a teen parent. And we don't hear those stories enough in order to have a varied view of who might be a teen parent. Uh, you look at Kim Jackson who is on on the news every day, and she's beautiful, she's gorgeous, she's articulate, but she was a teen mom of twins her senior year and graduated from Booker T. Washington. So we have to, in some way, highlight those stories so that the policy then becomes more reflective of everyone and not just this poverty narrative.
2: Yeah, and yes, yes. And at the same time that we need to highlight those stories and your own story, right? I think we need to also make sure that we don't hold up these stories and say, see, look, all you have to do is work really hard Mm -hmm. and pull yourself up by Mm -hmm. your bootstraps. And then magically, you'll be fine. Because within all of those stories are examples of these individuals getting what they need. And And they're stories that that match all of the research and all of the evidence about what people who are growing up in homes where their parents are working and making low wages. There are stories that confirm that those individuals aren't able to get what they need. And so it's hard for them to be successful. And so... um, Yes, I think we need to do both, but they're Mm -hmm. also beautiful stories to help us understand what we mean when we say that people have been systematically Mm -hmm. disadvantaged Mm -hmm. and there has been systemic racism and there has been institutional racism that has put black and brown people at systemic disadvantage Mm -hmm. and historical disadvantage, too.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. And finding that balance is difficult because within those stories of success, there's also stories of when they were given those resources, they took full advantage of those resources as well. And so there has to be an accountability factor for the person also in finding that balance to highlight the real truth and the hard work that it takes to do it. The family support that it takes to do it. I mean, there's so many Many aspects of it.
2: Yeah, I think when I was a teacher in low-income schools that were predominantly non-white, I think as a white woman who grew up in a middle-class family and went to very middle-class schools, I think the one of the most surprising things that I realized was that kids in those schools are taking are behaving, acting and taking the exact same kinds of path as my white middle class peers. So in the same way that in, you know, my high school graduating class, there's some of us who are doing really really well given what we've had because, you know, similar to you, I've taken a lot of my opportunities, right? And I've run with them and I have a lot of friends who have done the same. And I can also point to stories of fellow white middle class who grew up with a similar kind of income as I did who have not done that. They had all these opportunities. And for a lot of different reasons, they didn't grab a hold of them. And and you could make the argument that, you know, their life just looks very different. It's just qualitatively different. That's the exact same picture that I could draw for you in any one of any North Tulsa school. You go into any North Tulsa school, and you're going to have some of your kids who you know immediately they are going to take what they have and they're going to do magic. You're, you know, they're going to make magic with it. And Mm -hmm. you have other kids that aren't going to be able to do that. The difference is that the kids who I taught they have less wealth. Their community has less wealth. Their families collectively have less wealth. They have access to less resources than any than anyone who I grew up with. Mm-hmm. So that white middle class kid, am I in who I grew up with? They have a big cushion to land on, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. if they're not taking advantage of every opportunity, like they're not going to necessarily have to worry about being homeless. That's probably not you know that's not going to be the reality. It's very different in. For example, a North Tulsa community mm-hmm. where that student doesn't have that luxury and that privilege. And I think that's really tricky for especially for white people and especially for white middle class people to really understand is that, you know, yeah, you did work really hard and Kim Jackson. She worked super hard mm-hmm. with a lot less, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. those are that's an important part of the story. Yeah. Well,
1: and, and it's it's about the system itself too, because yeah. you find the same is true in any TPS school. The culture is different, but the mm-hmm. the the people are different. But the the culture no, the culture is different actually, mm-hmm. and the people are different. But the game itself is still the same. You either are in the crowd and you take make the best of it and you succeed, or you're not.
2: Mm-hmm. But Tulsa Public Schools, uh, they're in, I don't know the exact number, but I know it's in the 80s that 80 somewhat percent of students who go to Tulsa Public Schools are low income. Yes. That is the vast majority of those students are living with families in communities where they have less access to everything that they need. That makes it really hard to do well. And it puts so much pressure on those schools to serve Mm -hmm. those kids. Mm Gosh, can you imagine the difference between going to Tulsa Public Schools, where there's eighty somewhat percent of the students are low income, and going to some other school? Owasso. Owasso. I'm not. I'm. I'm hesitant to to talk about any one particular school because I don't know actually what the low income population of Owasso is, but I know it's much lower. <laughs> it's much lower. I have my my
1: youngest graduated from Owasso. Um, we've been in Owasso for 14 years, and now I'm raising my grandson in Owasso. Very, very low um, in terms of
2: the, the free of-
1: lunch, mm-hmm. uh, and I yes. think that's part of how they determine it is those that are eligible for free lunch, and that percentage is very low in comparison. Yes, to an um, a TPS.
2: Yes. Free and reduced price lunch mm-hmm. is often used as a proxy for the number of mm-hmm. low-income students. And now I'm curious. I'll go and look it up when we leave. But it is much lower than the 80%.
1: Much lower.
2: Much lower. I
1: wish we had invited Carlicia Williams to be a part of this. She is the executive director of uh, Impact Tulsa. And so she would have some good impact on this conversation. So we'll have to come back together and and include her in part of this conversation. Tell me, what's your
2: soapbox topic? Oh, wow. Good question. I think maybe I have a lot of those, but the one that comes to mind first are issues related to racial disparities in school discipline. So when I was in graduate school, this is what I focused a lot of my time, and my research and my master's thesis was Ultimately, trying to better understand why this is a problem and what we can do about it. What
1: did we not ask you that you wish we had asked?
2: Maybe I should just tell you a little bit more about the Oklahoma Policy Institute so people know who we are and what we do. You
0: can get, you can get on your soapbox and there tell it, us about the Oklahoma go. Policy <laughs> Institute.
2: We are a nonpartisan think tank. We are based um, here in Tulsa. And we provide information and research and analysis to advocate for policies that will ultimately lead to broad based prosperity for all Oklahomans. Um, and so we work on a variety of public policy issues. So we have an economic opportunity analyst who thinks about issues related to poverty and the social safety net. We have a health policy analyst, a criminal justice analyst, a mental health policy analyst, and then myself, um, the education policy analyst. And so we're we're mainly a source of information. So we write blog posts, we put we analyze data, we put out a lot of charts and graphs. And most of our work is focused at the state level policy. But we also have an advocacy component to our organization. And so we also work to talk to stakeholders, listen to stakeholders, and help equip stakeholders with what they need to advocate to for good policies that are going to ensure that broad-based prosperity. And then my other role, in addition to education policy analysts, is also as Kids Count coordinator. Kids Count is a program of the Annie E. Casey Foundation. And the Oklahoma Policy Institute became the Kids Count grantee about a year ago. There is one Kids Count grantee in all 50 states and Puerto Rico. And Kids Count is at its core is a data center. And so we house data about kids in Oklahoma. And every year, the Annie Casey Foundation publishes a data book. And so we can see how Oklahoma ranks in a lot of different indicators related to child welfare compared to our neighbors. So this data is really powerful. It's a powerful way to understand how Oklahoma is doing as it relates to kids, and it's a powerful way to communicate to lawmakers and other stakeholders about where we are and what still needs to be done. sums it up.
0: Let me ask you this. You you mentioned that when you tell people what you do, they start telling you all their stories. What is the most common misunderstanding or gap of people's information when it comes to educational policy and the educational policy of Oklahoma as a state.
2: I think this actually relates to what Elisa was talking about before. Look, when I was a teacher... and things would happen and I'd get really frustrated I'd want to blame someone (laughs) and sometimes there was maybe legitimately someone to blame but I think in any scenario it takes two to tango so uh, both parties usually have to take some some kind of the blame but I think when people start telling me their stories they're really angry and usually it turns into a story about kind of Blaming someone, it could be the State Department of Education, it could be a school, it could be a whole district, it could be a teacher, it could be a principal, and I understand that inclination. I often want to blame someone too, mostly because I'm frustrated and because it's painful and I'm angry and that makes it easier. But what I think I've learned is that there's actually never any one person to blame that because these problems are so intersectional, and I think that's what you were talking about before, Elisa that it's it's not just a school it's not just a state it's not just Oklahoma it's certainly not just Oklahoma um, it's not just funding though it is partly funding it's not just a bad principle though it is partly just a bad principle it's also poverty it's also our criminal justice system it's also our health care and lack of access to health care it's definitely has to do with uh, mental health policies and lack of access to mental health professionals and mental health care that these problems are all intersectional and until we address one we're not gonna fully be able to address the other. So sometimes when I hear these stories and I hear people start blaming, I just wanna ask them to pause and take a deep breath and I wanna say, I hear you, I understand you and you have every right to be angry. But we really need to better understand where the problem is, because I think if we misidentify the problem, then we can't come up with a really good solution. If we just keep blaming TPS and we just keep blaming, you know, the administration and the district, that's not helpful because it's not just their fault. and that's hard because we want simple answers and there's no simple answers. It's going to take a long time and a lot of hard work and little bits of change, but we've seen that happen. We've seen that happen throughout history. Our schools today are serving black and Brown kids better than they were 50 years ago. We have research to prove that. And that gives me hope that we can make schools, even in Oklahoma, we can make them better.
1: As you were talking, I, my soapbox Here recently has been reading, you know, and I talked to my I'm raising my 15 year old grandson who hates to read, which is so far from from me and from my girls because we were all big readers. And so when we think about family dynamics, there's no one in the house who's actually reading and totally understanding at the core, everything that's going on. And and I'm so thankful for Jesse introducing me to podcasts. And my grandson probably hates Jesse. He's never met him. Mm-hmm. But every time I send him a new podcast, I tell him, if you're not going to read, you can at least listen.
2: I love that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. If
1: you're not going to read, you can at least listen. And so I think as a community, we don't have people reading and fully understanding the things, the policy that's really impacting them. We have a virtual um, book club for our clients and uh, I can't get the young people to read, Mm -hmm. not even things that they recommend that they want to read. Or when we're doing our um, assessments and we ask them, I may have one in 20 students that say, Oh, I love to read and I want to be a part of the reading community. So In the virtual book club, we provide them with the reading materials. We eliminate all of the barriers. It's virtual because they don't have to find a babysitter. We pick a time that's convenient to them. Normally, after the baby has gone to bed, so it's usually around 8 o'clock. The discussion lasts about 30 minutes. So we've tried to eliminate every barrier, but they still won't engage. (laughs) So it's it's. As a family or as a community, we have to get back to the basics and start making sure that we understand every aspect before we start to point fingers, before we start to blame.
2: Yes. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. And I'm also totally with you that it's hard. I have um, a really good book that I'll just mention because maybe others want to read it. Um, It's called Making the Unequal. By Ansley Erickson. It is a history of Nashville public schools and the story of segregation and resegregation in Nashville. And I am an education policy analyst, I went to graduate school. I love this stuff. This is my career and it's been hard for me to get through this book. <laughs> and I was a former language arts teacher for seventh graders. And so getting boys, I think, especially into reading is so hard. But what I also love about the story you just told is it's is a perfect example of a great policy solution and saying, you know what, we're going to crack this nut and we're going to figure out how to get these kids to read. And I've also heard story after story of kids who don't like reading and people People like you who are like, all right, well, we're just going to keep trying other ways to get you engaged. And then eventually they do become good readers. But I'm with you. It is really hard and it takes a lot of time to learn this stuff. And that's a privilege that we certainly all don't have. And even if we do have it, like me, it's sometimes hard to get yourself to actually get through the book <laughs>
1: well if you haven't already tune in to the 1619 podcast oh,
2: yes yes
1: good one because that is a fan i've become a podcast queen and i get in the car and my husband and my grandson are like can we listen to the radio Great. please
2: yeah
0: no the answer is no, no. podcast for life. no
1: no th- we're I
2: podcasting he, i think you should tell everyone what the 1619 podcast is
0: The 1619 podcast is part of the New York Times 1619 Project, which is a sort of overarching history of American slavery from the very first time a quote unquote slave arrived on America's shores to now how we ended up with the situation culturally, philosophically, religiously, equality wise, how we got here Mm -hmm. through a policy wise, -wise. a long history of of slavery and things you things you thought you knew, you realized you did not know. Yeah,
2: and my other favorite thing about the 1619 Project is they have a free curriculum available to teachers, which I haven't looked at, but I can only imagine that it's really good, so.
1: I, w- I would love that. For me, I have never thought about, I mean, you you know racism, you know that, but I had never thought about all of the policy that started from slavery. Mm-hmm. As a, as a means for for lack of a better term, assisting the free freely emancipated slaves, which was just grounded in true racism, mm-hmm. <laughs> but then it went on to become it's, it's the the thread of our.
2: It became the law of the yeah, land for it is. a long time, and it still, isn't it still in is in there in many ways. It is. I
1: mean, and then I thought the American Medical Association was one of the last discussions. And you think about them, but I mean, the American Medical Association is what the NRA is to gun control. The mm-hmm. AMA is to our health care. Yeah, our health care, and that all was part of a racist.
2: Policy, Yes. And and 1619, I believe, is the first the year that the first known um, slave ships were the first slave ship ships. was brought to um, the United States.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it
2: does. It does a really good job of of painting that story and how deep racism is in this country.
1: OK, so now that we have gone as deeply as we can,
2: <laughs> tell me what you're
0: curious about just for fun.
2: Oh, In like my spare time, you mean, Mm -hmm. like to my fun time, um, in the spare
0: time you make for yourself when you're not working.
2: Yeah. Great question. Well, I'll tell you things that I do and that I love. Uh, I play tennis. I've played tennis since I was six. And I always say that tennis was my first love. I've never thought of myself as an athlete until recently. And I've realized kind of athletic because the other two things that I love is to bike and to run Um, and I've been biking since of course I was a little kid like a lot of people but like I've done a lot of long distance biking I've gone on like month-long bike trips or go camping and biking and I've led them for a group of teens and then I've run a marathon and I've run half marathons so uh, and I go hiking basically in my free time I try to be outdoors as much as humanly possible Yes.
1: Pretty athletic, I would say. Yeah.
0: yeah. When all of your hobbies are athletic things. I know.
2: I need to, I need to start owning that and recognizing it maybe. Yeah.
0: Podcasting, not an exercising hobby. It is yeah. not very active. So unless I can sort of make up a studio where we're all on like treadmill desks. Oh, okay. I think that would sound real terrible. So
2: <laughs> so what's your favorite word? Oh, My favorite word?
0: Mm.
2: Oh, that's such a good question. Oh, this is so corny, but I'll say it anyway. I think my favorite word is love. And as corny and as cliche and kind of maybe trite as it sounds, I think I found in my career as a teacher and my own personal life, um, and especially, you know, I think about going back to school discipline, that I think if we are all able to love more and give more love, that... It would really help a lot of these problems. And I think people find that challenging to do for a lot of different reasons. But I think we all, the world needs more love and we'd all be better off.
1: I think that's a good way to end. But before we do, I would like to say thank you for coming in and participating in this podcast. And thank you for the work that you do. I started to follow you and to read the different stories that you've done And it led me to this ICAP and it led me to these bills and this legislation that I would have known nothing about. But those things have become such a tool for us as we um, plan for the next year. I know our students are older than the traditional high school student. But most of our kids need all of the activities that are that the state sees as valuable uh, for success. And so we're using the ICAP as a guide for directing the work that we do. And uh, I want to thank you for that because your work is what led us there. And then again, I want to thank Jesse for the podcast fever that I now have. And like I have like I tell my grandson, if you're not going to read, the least you can do is listen.
2: I love that. Thank you, Elisa. Thank you for having me. This is, it's a privilege to be here. And I really, this was fun. I really liked it. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. I'm
0: glad. We try to make it fun, even though we're talking about serious topics. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and, and Elisa, I'm so glad that we met because I know we're going to partner more and collaborate. And that's going to be positive and jesse thank you for your uh fun activity being podcasting
0: I i do what i love so <laughs> i hope you enjoyed episode two of the james inc podcast with rebecca fine i want to thank her again for taking time to talk with us and i hope you learned as much as we did about how complicated and interwoven issues are here in oklahoma Please don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast and we look forward to learning and better understanding the history of the Margaret Hudson program here in Tulsa with our next episode a month from now. Don't forget to check our show notes for links to the book that was mentioned and links to the James Inks website as well as Podcast for Good's Patreon page. Talk to you next month.